If you missed any part of today's show and would like to listen to the podcast, please visit SherryHillShow.com. The social revolution of the 1970s coined the word marginalized to describe the experiences of those who live on the fringe of mainstream America. Such persons are systematically excluded from full participation in the American dream and consequently lack the self-efficacy to improve their life situation. In the end, society pays the cost when people encounter barriers to achieving their potential. The term marginalized has expanded from originally referring to minorities and persons from poverty to include a long list of cultures and populations, such as ex-felons and those affected with mental illness. Dr. Laura McGuire is a consultant and expert witness at the National Center for Equity and Agency. Dr. McGuire incorporates the principles of cultural humility, strengths-based practices, and trauma-informed frameworks into all aspects of her work. She has experience working with organizations and agencies to create environments that work to heal the structural inequalities that lead to the systemic issues of marginalization, harassment, and exclusion. Her unique perspective as a sexologist and educator lends to her ability to work in many sectors to create equitable and restorative cultural shifts. Welcome, Dr. Laura McGuire. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, how do we as a society first acknowledge and then address marginalization in our own communities? Mm. So I think one of the common misconceptions with understanding this very complex and multifaceted topic is that people expect the systems to change before the individuals change. And so it's really about beginning with yourself uh, and then your, your little ecosystem, right? Whether it's your family at home, your business, your team that you work with, it's really building that foundation of understanding what marginalization is on the micro level so that you can then work effectively on the mezzo and macro. Absolutely. So, you know, what's going on in our country is obviously unfortunate, where I think this issue has resurfaced first and foremost across the nation to where the loudest members of society are those that are being marginalized. And then there's this whole population of folks that are like, well, if I don't acknowledge it or I'm not experiencing it myself, how can it possibly be existing? Right. And so I know you work with a lot of organizations and agencies. So how does somebody first reach out to you? What is going on in their world that they're like, you know what, we better have a discussion or training or awareness around it? Right. So it really comes uh, usually two different ways. Either they have a crisis or they feel like a crisis is on its way, and they are, are looking for help, right? Because now they see, okay, there's a problem, and I need to do something about it. And I kind of look at those as, you know, the, the fire has already started, and they're, and they're seeing the flames, and they want to put them out. Um, and then the other group that reaches out to me are people who have awareness, 
and they want the tools and the skills to prevent fires from happening. So they're being proactive, and they want to bring in somebody who can create kind of an outline, a structure, uh, an educational platform for them to not hopefully see any sparks start to ignite. Um, and then if they do see something that's of concern, have a, a plan on what exactly they would do to address that. Mm-hmm. And uh, and those are the, the people that I definitely appreciate, and that is the perspective I prefer, right, is not to be reactive but to be proactive about these things. But I think as a culture, we definitely tend to be on the reactive side, and we say, well, you know, like you, like you mentioned, you know, if I don't see the problem, it must not exist uh, until the person is facing a whole myriad of issues, um, and and then they're trying to address it after the fact, which is much harder to do. Absolutely. And, you know, when you think of young people in the school districts around the nation, I think there is a lot more conversation about this going on now, and I'm guessing... Uh, Laura, that if, you know, you can reach down to the younger population so we uh, redevelop their, you know, concepts around people and, you know, what just kindness. A lot of this is around kindness. Would you agree? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. I think, you know, one of the things that we definitely lack and is something that can be taught to a certain degree is empathy, right? Because whether I work really a lot on either sexual violence prevention, which again can be everything from harassment to stalking to assault, as well as diversity and inclusion. And sometimes people kind of, you know, look at that and think, that's kind of an odd combination of topics. But what I try to help them understand is they're actually really the same thing, right? The roots of both issues have to do with a lack of empathy, a lack of understanding how someone else feels, and a lack of caring about how someone else feels, right? You might see that people feel left out or upset, um, but so many people have grown up centering their own experience as kind of the nucleus of, you know, how they think all humans are experiencing life. Uh, and so it's very hard for them to understand, oh, you know, this this is challenging for somebody else. This other group of people feel left out, feel excluded or harmed. Hmm, I've never thought of that. So if we, yes, if we can teach young people to say, think outside of yourself, think outside of your lens, your experience of the world is not the universal experience of the world. Uh, and if we can bridge that gap in understanding, then we create young people who become the future leaders that look at things very differently. And we start to actually heal these these wounds that we have socially. Absolutely. Well, in the nonprofit world, which I'm involved in quite heavily, I mean, a lot of this exists, right? In the work that they're doing, in the awareness that they're creating, and so how often do you work with nonprofit organizations to really help them get a bigger message to reach more people through your organization, the National Center for Equity and Agency? <laughs> yeah. 
So definitely work with nonprofits. Uh, I think that's an area that continue to want to grow in. I think for-profit organizations, you know, they have a different kind of concern about liability, retention, productivity, all that stuff. So they are going to prioritize a budget that includes training, consulting, et cetera. Uh, and I think that nonprofits, you know, I that's where a lot where I worked um, before I had my own firm, they they are, I think, just as much in need of this kind of education, but also just ongoing support, right? Because as people who work in nonprofits, you care about something. You're already concerned about the world uh, and, and the issues that you see in it. And I think so so many times because, again, it's, it's maybe thought to be a luxury or something that, you know, they can't afford, that leads to just kind of compounding stress, burnout. People aren't fed, aren't given the tools and support and resources to be effective, and then their mission is effective. And so I, I definitely agree. I think that, um, you know, we, we want to continue to partner a, in a large part with nonprofits because we actually have a very similar goal and objective and can provide them a lot of support to make the work that they're doing in the world a lot easier. Well, and also in my intro, we talked about the fact that society pays the costs when people mm-hmm. encounter barriers, right? And so as a for-profit company, you know, you think about all the people, if your goal is to serve more and to help more, then going you know, diving deeper into your own community to go, what are the systemic issues that are preventing people from working, starting their own businesses, becoming my customer? I mean, that, I would think, should be of paramount importance to everyone that owns a business. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I think where the barriers with engaging in this conversation come in in the for-profit world is a false sense of believing they know everything about their product, and so there's nothing else for them to learn in this area, right? Like that, that kind of belief system. Well, I, I know who buys my product, and, you know, if we're just not selling to a certain group of people, it's because they don't, they don't care about what we have. Or, like you're saying, well, if people aren't starting businesses, it's just because uh, they must not want to. And so then our work really is helping them understand that they don't know what they don't know, right? And that that's okay. That's not something that they should feel ashamed about. But I think a a lot of the conversations that I come in and have, people think they already know these topics. Well, I already know to be inclusive. Well, I already know, uh, you know, how to prevent harassment. And they don't, right? And so when you start talking to them about, well, you know, what are you doing on this front or that front? They, they suddenly start to realize, I don't even know what that means, or I know what it means, but I haven't said anything about it, <laughs> and, and therefore helping them have those tools to be more effective, right, and to be those community leaders, because I think especially in the for-profit world, there's a huge platform to create change, to bring these issues to the forefront, and really make the community decision makers and stakeholders do something about it. But there has to be that willingness to learn and grow and engage in this conversation. Absolutely. 
I'm chatting with Dr. Laura McGuire, who is a consultant and expert witness at the National Center for Equity and Agency. We have to go to break. We come back. I'm going to pick up on this conversation because I like the direction it's going. We'll be right back. If you want the best tax and legal secrets used by successful real estate investors today, contact Sherry Hill, the wealth protection diva at Sage International Incorporated, a local company that's been helping new as well as seasoned real estate investors for over 23 years protect their hard-earned wealth today. To schedule a free 30-minute consultation with Sherry, call 775-786-5515. That's 775-786-5515 to strategize with the Wealth Protection Diva today. Call Sage International. Welcome back and thank you for tuning in to the Sherry Hill Show. Having a great conversation with Dr. Laura McGuire who is a consultant and expert witness at the National Center for Equity and Agency. She also is a sexologist and educator, and so she is able to work with many sectors, businesses, nonprofits, populations, to really start to create an equitable and restorative cultural shift within organizations and communities. And so, Laura, let's talk about what is a sexologist first so that we have a basis for talking more about, you know, as a business owner, we think we know things about how to prevent sexual harassment, but your experience says we don't. Right, right. So a sexologist is someone who follows the scholarly pursuit of understanding human sexual behavior. So it can be someone who is coming from it from a psychological standpoint. There are people who are coming at it from more of education. And then kind of third is the intersection of those two in research. And so sexology kind of spans those, those three disciplines, but is its own field of study. And so for me, my, my field of study really focused on the education piece, some one-on-one counseling, but really understanding how to educate people on the topics that in sexology intersected with violence prevention and, again, diversity and inclusion, really focusing a lot on culture and of the LGBTQ population. Well, you know, there's a huge trend coming across America right now where sex education in the schools is under attack because, you know, every community is different and you have parents in uproar and then you have kids who are kind of caught in the middle. I mean, what is your feeling around, you know, how much do we share with kids at what ages? I mean, the reality is it all exists, right? Mm -hmm. So every... When we talk about sexual uh, behavior and things like that, so what is your what is your philosophy on what's going on across our country right now? Yeah, so I that was actually a, a large focus of my dissertation when I got my doctorate was trying to improve those conversations. And actually, my my research was supposed to be national, but it ended up being an international study, which was really interesting. And and yes, there's a lot of always pushback because if you look at the history of where the conversation about sex education even started, 
in the United States, it was always controversial. There were always three camps. One really was saying, you know, we want to make sure young people think that sex is something to avoid and should only be within marriage for procreation. And then there was a second camp that said, you know, this is really just about hygiene and STDs. And then there was a third that said, no, this is about empowering people and making sex something that isn't shameful and is natural. And so it's funny, if you look back, you know, all those many, you know, generations ago, that's the argument that founded sex education being in schools and in communities, and that's exactly the argument we have today. And so, my, I mean, my standpoint is look at what works in research, right? Not to be uh, arguing this from an emotional standpoint of, well, I think the world should be this way or I think the world should be that way, but based on, on actual quantifiable data, what is most effective? And it's interesting that I'm sure some of your listeners are thinking, well, you know, what would this have to do with business? Um, but it's, it's very much connected. And I think that's why I bring a very unique and helpful lens to the corporate side of these conversations is that we know that when we empower people about sexuality and sensitive topics and we make these approachable conversations that people don't have to, you know, look down at the floor about or think, oh, you know, I don't want my kids to know about this because where are they going to do with it? When we take that shame and fear away, we see that people, one, make better choices, two, we increased uh, making, you know, decisions that are um, beneficial to a community and also a decrease in perpetration of violence uh, and oppression, marginalization, all those kinds of things. And we see this across the lifespan. So my opinion is that the more education, the better because education empowers people. And that's true whether we're talking to, you know, very young kids about their bodies and bodily autonomy, or we're talking to teenagers about making informed decisions about their health and relationships, or we're talking to business leaders about why it's important to have these conversations openly and candidly and in an empowering way so that they decrease their risk of harassment and exclusion and don't have to face litigation or even just high turnover around these topics. Well, and I think also, you know, when you talk about the direction of, you know, sex ed in the schools, I mean, who's teaching it? That's the other. Are they trained like you with a PhD as a, you know, someone who has done all the research? I don't think so. And that, I think, is a part of the problem is you don't have the right people in position to be having these open and direct and honest conversations with these young people, right? Second is, you know, when we use the word harassment, I think that it has become, I mean, now anything is tagged harassment, and I don't think that's a good trend that's marching across our nation. What do you think? Mm -hmm. So to to talk to the first point, I think that um, you're absolutely right, and I think it's true whether it's talking about these 
very sensitive topics in schools, or it's even, you know, how many companies now do diversity and inclusion or sexual harassment training. And if you did any digging on who these teachers and presenters are, many of them don't have a real scholar practitioner foundation, right? They, they have a script, they have slides, they go through them. I even have worked with certifying other health teachers and mentoring upcoming trainers on these topics. And I have a lot of concerns because, again, a lot of them aren't actual subject matter experts, and therefore they try to fill in the gaps of what they know and don't know with, you know, kind of answers off the top of their head, which can be really, really dangerous and cause more harm than good. And uh, and then I think that the the other part of it is I think that where you're saying people people are labeling everything as harassment, right? Yes. There's a concern around lumping all of these behaviors that we're being more aware of and being more concerned about and wanting to change. That is good, but we're lumping them together, right? And so one of my points to kind of help people, whether I'm teaching students or I'm teaching, you know, executives, is that there are, there is a continuum, right? There is a spectrum to this. And we don't want to lump everything together because then, like you're saying, people will say, well, you know, the same term is being used or the same approach is being used for somebody who's clearly predatory and extremely dangerous as with somebody who clearly didn't understand that they were being offensive when they made a joke, right? Right. And, and therefore, then people say, well, I don't take any of this seriously because, you know, there's too broad of a brush being used. And that's not what we want. We want people to take these things seriously and, and have these conversations. So I think it's about helping people understand that continuum and that, um, and that there's many different reasons for offending behaviors. And I actually, I work with offenders as well on a wide spectrum of, of cases. I work with them um, in executive coaching when we see employees that have maybe problematic tendencies or beliefs and we want to address it before it escalates. And I also work with students around Title IX cases with sexual misconduct. And, and again, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of factors that go into it. It can be everything from culture, you know, people really not understanding um, because they're coming from a different part of the world or a different part of the country, that the way they were approaching people or comments they were making were hurtful and offensive. It can be things like neurodivergence, that people, for example, who are on the autism spectrum might not read the social cues that they were making someone uncomfortable. And then there's the whole other spectrum where there's people who are, again, predatory, right? They want to cause harm. Um, like you mentioned, you know, those are the people a lot of times we see in the news, the Cosby's, the Weinstein's, who are, who are clearly thinking this out and saying, I just like hurting people. This is what I enjoy. <laughs> and, and again, those are all very different factors and it require very different approaches. And it's important that we point that out. Absolutely. And that's part of the education for the young people. When you talk mm -hmm. about, you know, it helps with self-esteem, uh, obviously confidence, empowerment, those kinds of things. And so we really are going to have to start focusing on the younger people so we stop 
what's going on out there is this broad brush, as you say, where now every time somebody says something or inappropriately uh, does something, where really does harassment fit in, right? <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. um, and certainly should be addressed if it is of a nature that does make people uncomfortable. I'm talking to Dr. Laura McGuire, and she is the uh, founder, basically, of the National Center for Equity and Agency. And so, Laura, if somebody wanted to reach out to you or find out more, what's a great place for them to find you? Yeah, so definitely to check out our website, which is equityandandagency.com. Um, they can email me at here to serve at equityandagency.com. And we also have Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. If, if younger people are listening and want to connect with us on social media, but, uh, you know, definitely people can, you know, reach out and simply ask follow-up questions. Um, and then if they think that this is the kind of conversation they want to bring to their organization, we're happy to discuss that and create a very customized plan. None of our offerings are cookie cutter. We really look at each of our clients as individuals um, and, and we work with, you know, what they've already done, where they are and where they want to go. Awesome. Make a plan around that. Great. All right. Well, thank you for tuning into the Sherry Hill Show. I want to thank Dr. Laura McGuire for joining me today. And at least I hope opening our minds a little bit and know that there are resources such as her organization that we can reach out to if, you know, we want to change the results and create a society that has empathy and kindness. Thank you for tuning into the Sherry Hill Show, where business is amplified. (laughs) 